I came in a little late, as Eddie pointed out. Is this somebody's ring? Yeah, yeah. I was supposed to tell that you found in the restaurant. Ladies' restaurant. There's a little ring. It has a... Yeah, very, it's little, about my pinky finger size. We'll put it. If you want it, it'll just be here in the corner. You have to come to the altar, which will make me think. Wow, what a sermon. If this is pure gold ring. I know how to move people, Eddie. I'm sure you may have already done this, but before I start, I want to just take a minute to pray for my father-in-law and my wife and family and ask God to be with them today. Dear Lord, under you, death has no sting. But the truth is we live in a world where not everyone knows you and Death does have a sting. It's heartbreaking and trying. I just pray for comfort. Over and over and over, especially in the Psalms, David and the other psalmists will walk through suffering and they say, I just don't understand it, but I trust that you're good and that you will bring good out of all things. And so I'm asking for my family that you will give them faith and peace to rest in your goodness and your provision. Pray for Ralph that you will, like the thief on the cross, open his eyes on his last day. We know that you're good. We ask that you give us unwavering confidence in that. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. I found out this morning that I'll be speaking. So I have some rough outline in front of me. We'll we'll do our best. I hope that you'll bear with me uh, a little bit if I have to kind of pause and gather my thoughts. What we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 8. We... uh, In the evening services, we've been walking through the book of Matthew, and I'd already started preparing this for the following week, so I decided we'll just bump it up a little bit. We've been walking through Matthew, and last week we started, last Sunday night, we started a new section, and that was a section that was two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, and they walked through the miracles of Jesus. And they're written to tell us one big idea, that Jesus is absolutely unique. There is no one ever who has been like Jesus. And the thing that we saw is that Jesus, he, the, the first three miracles we looked at, he would go up to people who were sick or dying or with fever, and with just a word or a touch of his hand would be completely healed. A leper... He touched a leper and made him clean, right? That kind of authority was meant to just amaze us and really to get us to ask a question that we're going to see the disciples ask in our passage today and say, who is this man? What kind of man can do something like this? 
In the very last verse of the section we looked at last week, said that this is the man who was promised in Isaiah. This was the coming Messiah, the man who could take away the sins of all the world. And so what Matthew is trying to get us to believe is that Jesus is so unique, so impressive that he's worth our faith. Right? It'd be a good bet to place all your hopes in Jesus because you've never seen another person who can just say to sickness, be gone, and it'll be gone. It's worth believing in him. He's given us evidence to believe in him. And so we're going to keep walking through these two chapters and keep seeing more evidence for why we should believe in Jesus. But in today's section, we're also going to see an interesting um, kind of a subplot that's going to run into this. And that's the question of what, what do we mean by faith? When we say we want to believe that Jesus has all authority and we want to respond with faith, what does that faith look like? If Jesus can say to sickness, be gone, and it's gone immediately, and we're supposed to have unwavering faith in that, how would that be expressed in our lives? Historically speaking, I think there's been kind of two giant camps, two big ways of viewing this. Um, One is that if we have faith that Jesus can make everything right and heal things with just a word, then we should never walk through suffering again, right? If Jesus could just heal sickness with a word, then if we had faith that Jesus would heal our sickness with a word and we would never be sick again. But there's another kind of faith that says, no, because Jesus has ultimate authority, it's not that I will never suffer again, it's that I will eagerly and happily walk through suffering because he's worthy of that. Right, and so I want to kind of give you two examples. I've just pulled out, this morning I got online and Time Magazine had an article from a couple years ago on describing a kind of wave of this, the first example. People who think faith means I should never really suffer again. And then I also pulled out a letter from someone who has kind of that opposite viewpoint. Let me read both of those to you just to give us some examples. How would this, what would this look like? I'll read the first one. This is... I'm just going to read it verbatim, right out of Time Magazine. Time Magazine, it was a, I won't read the whole article, but it was about a five-page article, and it started with an example of a guy named George Adams. He said, when George Adams lost his job at an Ohio tile factory last October, the most practical thing he did, he thinks, was go to a new church. Even though he had to move his wife and four preteen boys to Conroe, a suburb of Houston, to do it. And talked about the pastor that he sat under. He said, this pastor relentlessly upbeat television sermons had helped Adams, 49, get through the hard times. And now Adams was expecting this smiling uh, Texas twang, 43-year-old, to help boost him back to success. And his pastor did. He inspired, inspired by the preacher's insistence that one of God's top priorities is to shower blessings on the Christians in this lifetime, and by the corollary assumption that one of the worst things a person can do is to expect, is to expect anything less, Adams marched into Golo Ford and Conroe looking for work. He didn't have, he didn't have entry-level aspirations. God showed me that he doesn't want me to be a run-of-the-mill person, he explains. He demanded to know what the dealership's top salesman made, and he got the job. Banishing all doubt, 
You can't sell a forty dollars to $50,000 car with menial thoughts. Adam took four days to retail his first vehicle, a Ford F-150 Lariat with leather interior. He knew that many fellow salesmen don't notch their first score until the second week. So right now, I'm above average, he explained. It's a new day and God's given me, and I'm on my way to a six-figure income. The sales commission will help with this month's rent, but Adams hates renting. Once that six-figure income has been rolling in for a while, he will buy his dream house, 25 acres, he says, and three bedrooms, and we're going to have a schoolhouse because his children are homeschooled. And he wants horses and ponies for the boys and a horse barn and a, and a pond, a horse barn and a pond, and maybe some cattle. And all of that, he says, is what it means to have faith in the God who can do anything. There's another kind of faith that I want to show you. Not faith that says, because God can do anything, I can have everything. But a faith that says, because God can do anything, I will follow him through anything. This is a letter I want to read to you. It was written by a missionary. He wasn't a missionary yet. His name was Adoniram Judson. He was the first American, Baptist American missionary to the Burmese people. And he had met a girl that he wanted to marry, and so he writes this letter to her dad. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to, ex- to her I'm sorry, whether you can consent to her exposures to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? He asked this potential father-in-law, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened in the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Her father-in-law, this was Ann, eventually Ann Judson, he said, well, I'll leave this in your hands, Ann. You can make the decision. And so... uh, Shortly after she writes this letter to a friend, she says, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have come, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, to sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and to go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me. Do you see the vast difference between these two pictures of faith? One of them says, I can have a six-figure income because God's big. The other one says, I will give up every earthly comfort because God's that big. What I think our passage we're going to look at this morning says is that God wants us to choose that second kind of faith. The kind that says that God is worth everything. God is worth giving up all your earthly comforts 
for the sake of glorifying him. That's what his bigness and his authority and his salvation should mean in our lives. We're going to look at this passage, and you'll see there's kind of four sections. Two of those are interactions with followers of his, and two of those are two more miracles. And as we look through these, at each one we're going to see that Jesus is asking for a radical faith that will cost something. A faith that will result in sacrifice. And so the central question that we all have to ask ourselves this morning is do we have a faith that's willing to sacrifice? Will our faith cost us something? Let me read the text. We'll start in Matthew chapter 8. We'll start in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And when he was entered into his ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? And when he was come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, a herd of many swine feeding, so the, so the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine read, ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we want to understand your word and to live rightly by it. So as we work through this study this morning and try to understand it. We ask that you give us understanding, open our eyes and our minds to see the major works in your word here and so that we can understand how you're instructing us. We also pray that you open our hearts to be obedient, to be people who will submit to your instruction and your will, 
and to be people whose lives will be shaped by what you've told us. We pray this in your name. Amen. What I want to do this morning is just to walk through each of these four conversations. And so what I want to start with is by looking again at the hasty teacher. I'll read it again, just verses 18 through 20. It says, When Jesus saw large crowds around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea, and a scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's an interesting story where it seems like there's a man who wants to follow Jesus. So I want to start by helping us figure out who is this man? Who is this scribe? And I want to just read to you right now from a commentary by a guy named Dale Bruner and let you listen to his description of this scribe. It says, The subject of this sentence, not only grammatically, is the Bible teacher himself who says, I am going to follow you. And when listened to carefully, his remark has overtones of, Jesus, this is your lucky day. I've decided to be your disciple. So significantly, the educator does not approach Jesus as Lord. To this man, Jesus is primarily an attractive teacher. And since the candidate's uh, skill is teaching too, and since he has not encountered another teacher as impressive as Jesus, he now announces... And he says, announces, not requests, that he is Jesus' man completely. Until now, we have not noticed any scribe or educated Bible teacher in Jesus' entourage. And perhaps this candidate has noticed that too. And this may have given more elan or more puffed up nature to his announcement. Jesus, at last you have a man with a mind. In other words... This man seems to see Jesus as his opportunity. He thinks that he is a smart, great teacher, and he sees that Jesus is a smart, great teacher, and he thinks, I'll attach myself with him. I will learn well, I'll grow, and I'll have great opportunities for teaching. It seems like maybe this is a career move for a teacher. Jesus, I'll follow you because I can tell that you're a great teacher, and I'm not so shabby myself. We could be a good team here. And so Jesus responds to him in a way that says, I don't think you understand what you're asking. He says, you say you'll go wherever I go, but do you really know what that means? Let me read from another commentator. This is Matt Woodley. He says, do you really want to follow me wherever We're on the road most of the time. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't know where I'll sleep tomorrow night. We don't share the conveniences of middle-class existence. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. We're going to marginal places of pain and abandonment. We'll touch lepers and howling demoniacs. Then we'll march into Jerusalem where I'll get murdered and all my disciples will scatter. It's a life marked by insecurity and vulnerability. That's what you're signing up for when you follow me. Are you sure that's the kind of teacher you want to follow? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't come to be my follower because it's glamorous. Because it's not glamorous. 
I'm calling you to a life of sacrifice, of hardship, sometimes pain. All Christians. There is an element of suffering that comes from following the suffering servant. The fact that Jesus gave his life for us says that we will respond by giving our lives for other people. We die to our needs so that we can perform his will. I'm just trying to think of some of the ways, just some of the small ways that your life might be marked with some level of sacrifice. Right? Adoniram Judson went over to be a missionary, died of horrible sufferings. But even if you're living right here in Baker County, if you decide, I'm going to follow Christ wholeheartedly, let me just think of a couple small ways. Let's say, for instance, you decide, I'm going to give 10% of my income. Nothing elaborate, just 10% of my income for the rest of my life as a token of following Jesus. That adds up. You're looking at being able to buy a whole second house, probably. If you're just a 40000 50000 a year job, you're maybe buying one or more houses that you've decided to give up over the course of your lifetime. It's a lot of money that you're willing to sacrifice. And that's just if you're saying, I'm only in for ten. It's not just money that we're talking about sacrificing. It's time. Sister Mavis actually thought about you this week. And I know that you, for years, have taught Sunday school for children. And I thought, how many hours have you given up? Days or weeks or months, perhaps, of your time that has been dedicated to preparing lessons, to spending time with kids on, on mornings, to bringing kids to church. That's a large part of your life that you've said, I've given it up to the service of the least of these in our church and in our community. Jesus is saying, if you're coming to follow me, this is not glamour. This is a life of sacrifice. And those are just some of the smallest tokens of sacrifice that may be called of us. Time and money. Are you sure this is a life you're willing to live? Don't haphazardly say, I'll follow you, Jesus. Understand, he's asking for full, wholehearted obedience and following him that will result in suffering and sacrifice. Let's keep moving. Let's look at this second disciple, and this is a, this is a hard one. Look at verse 21 and 22. It says, Lord, another the disciple said, let me pause here real quick. When we are using the word disciples here, this is, the Gospels especially will use disciples sometimes as a title for his 12 followers. But disciple can also just mean general followers. And so in Matthew 8 and 9, uh, and really in 4, we'd already seen this as well, disciples just means these big crowds of people who are following Jesus. Right? So another one of these people from this big crowd says, Jesus, I would love to follow you. Well, let me just read it. He says, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me and let the be- dead bury their own dead. 
That seems harsh. And I think that's the point. Let's look at the man's request. Most scholars agree that this man's father hasn't died yet. Right? In Jewish tradition, pretty similar to here, burial happens pretty quickly after death. Right? And so if the man's father had died, he wouldn't be out fo- walking with crowds following Jesus until the death had, and burial had already happened. So it seems like most scholars agree that this man's talking about, I have a dying father, and I want to stay home and take care of this man. So I'll follow you when I get all of that taken care of. Jesus says, let the, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. And so though that might soften the harshness, we shouldn't diminish. This is still a harsh thing, right? One commentator, his name, this guy's name is Eugene Boring, which I think is a funny name. <laughs> Eugene, just a boring name. Eugene Boring. And he's a, he writes Bible commentaries. Fitting, isn't it? So Eugene Boring says this. One can hardly imagine a more legitimate, reasonable request than to bury one's father. He says, and that's the point. Absolutely nothing may take priority over Jesus' call to discipleship. In other words, Jesus isn't saying... I'm anti-family, but he is saying I'm anti-family first. Right? That's the key word. The guy said, first, let me, fo- let me bury my father. And Jesus says, no, first you follow me. Dale Bruner says, Jesus is not an enemy of loving your family, but he is an enemy of loving your family ahead of, first, or before loving him. Following Jesus, again, is not a glamorous call. It's saying all things of this world are behind me and the cross is before me and I serve him without reserve. Now, don't get us wrong. There's plenty of evidence in the Bible that Jesus wants us to take care of our family, to bury them, to provide for them, to love them and care for them, but never first. He's first. So again, Matthew seems to be telling us this story to ask us, do you think faith is making your life more comfortable? Or is faith sacrificially saying, I follow Jesus no matter what I have to give up? No matter what I have to give up, I'll follow Jesus. I think the faith that Matthew's pointing us to is a second kind of faith. Jesus first. Not comfort, not security. Jesus first. Let's keep moving through our story. We'll go to the miracle now. The first miracle that we see is Jesus in the boat with his disciples. And I'll start in verse 23. Jesus says, as he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was sleeping. So the disciples came and they woke him and said, Lord, save us, we're going to die. 
But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm, and the men were amazed. And they asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. That is neat. We've seen three miracles a couple Sunday nights ago where Jesus would heal sicknesses and disease. But this is a whole new category of miracle. Now Jesus just speaks to the winds and to the waves, and they're still. And the men ask, who can do that? It's the Lord of the wind and the seas. The one who created the wind and the seas. Jesus is saying, I'm not just some ordinary guy. I'm the God who created this entire world that you're living in. This miracle story just keeps amping up how awesome Jesus is and how worthy he is for us to follow him. The interesting thing, though, is that the disciples' response, or the way Jesus interacts with them, he calls them, he says, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Remember the first three miracles? We see all the Gentiles, and all these people are great faith people. Right? There was one guy who said, God, if you will, you can speak to the leper's man, and I'll be healed. You can just speak it, and I'll be healed, and he does. Or, I'm sorry, if you will, you can heal me, and he touches the leper's man. The centurion comes and says, I have a servant with palsy. He says, you don't even have to come to my house. You can just speak it, and you'll be healed. And Jesus looks at those guys and says, that's amazing faith. But then he looks at his disciples, and he says, that's just little faith. Let's investigate that a little bit. First thing to point out is that it is at least a little faith. A little faith is better than no faith, right? We know that they have a little faith because they call him Lord. Right? Remember the scribe who just, just thought of him as teacher? They're at least saying, you're Lord, you're my master. They expect Jesus can do something to help them. That's why they wake him up. So they at least have a little bit of faith. And another point that's worth pointing out is that Jesus honors their little faith. Let me read to you again from Dale Bruner. He says, The point is that even when our faith is excessively fearful, Jesus hears our cry. He gets up, he rebukes the wind and the sea, and he creates calm. Jesus does not say, as he might have, come back later when your faith is stronger and I'll help you. He takes us as we come. And he, um, and is, I messed that up. Okay, I'm sorry. He takes us as we come, and he even takes us if we come with hardly any faith at all. He cannot pretend that he is flattered, but he does go immediately to work. He says, what matters in the final analysis is that Jesus helps us however we come to him. He says, just come. He says, even little faith is faith still. 
It reminds me of the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's a lot of comfort to be taken from the fact that these who he says, oh ye of little faith, he saves. He honors their little faith. There's a lot of comfort in that. That said, I also want to ask, what would more faith look like? What, what would it look like if they were more faith people? And, and the more I think about it, the more I think the problem with the disciples' faith is that it seems to wilt in the face of suffering. Right? When they, fit, when they walk, the storm gets there and the waves are crashing over the boat and it seems like they're going to die, that's when they think, is there any hope? Is there any good in this man who's asleep in our boat? That suffering for them was a destructive blow to their faith. And that's what drew me to this letter of Adoniram Judson's that I read when we began. For him... His faith was what made him willing to walk through the suffering to begin with. Judson's perspective was, I would rather be in a boat in the middle of a stormy sea if Jesus is on that boat than safely on the shore if Jesus is not on the shore. The faith, I think, that Jesus is looking for is a faith that is willing to walk through the storm with Jesus because you know that he has authority. I certainly don't mean that we don't ask Jesus to calm our storms or to heal our sicknesses. But I think we do it in the way that the centurion did and that the leper did. It says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you're not willing, I'll stay in the boat with you. I'm willing to walk through the storms because he is worthy of that. That's big faith, I think. A faith that's willing to suffer because Jesus is worth it. Let's look at our last miracle, of the, not of the whole section, but just for today. The last miracle is where Jesus encounters the two demon-possessed men. And we'll start in verse 28. When he, Jesus, had come to the other side, to the regions of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out from the tombs. They were so violent that no one could even pass that way. And suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a long way off from them, there was a large herd of pigs feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into that herd of pigs. Go, he told them. And so when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and suddenly the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. The men who attended them, who attended the pigs, they fled and they went into the city and they reported everything, especially what happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that time, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. 
And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. Isn't that wild? We again have a new miracle, a whole new kind of miracle. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over creation, the wind and the wave. And now we see Jesus can command the demons and they have to respond to his words and his commands. He has full authority. He is so big that not only does he have full control over everything in the earthly realm, he has control over everything in the spiritual realm. There is nothing that is not under the control of Jesus. Who is this man? He's the Messiah. He's God. Matthew's again calling us to say, this guy is different. This guy is worth trusting in. The interesting thing is the response of the people who saw it happen. They see this guy who's worthy of their trust, and look what they do. They run back to the town, and they say, you know those two men that were on the road, and they they wouldn't even let us pass through the road. They were so violent. Jesus came out, and he cast the demons out of those men. What a powerful guy. But the problem for them was that he cast them into their herd of pigs. And those pigs ran off the cliff into the water and died. And these farmers lost their income. And the men of the town thought, we can't have this. We can't have a guy who's going to cost us something. And so they come out and say, leave our region. You'll kick out the son of God who just healed two demon-possessed men because it's going to cost you something? As a reader, I think, are these guys idiots? What are you thinking? But that's what it does. That's what they do. And the question comes back to us, are you willing to follow Jesus if it will cost you something? It's the type of faith that you have in this man of complete authority, one that says, I am willing and happy to walk through whatever suffering may come for the sake of your name. The faith that Jesus does not offer to us is a faith that says, I will follow you as long as I get everything I want. That's not the faith that's on the table here. The faith that Jesus is offering us is a faith that says, I will follow you no matter what the cost, because you're worthy of it. And so that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Each time I close a a message, I like to ask, how do you respond? How do you respond to the picture of Jesus and discipleship that was painted in these verses for us? Let me suggest a couple. One, I believe, is that we need to stop promoting a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything. And I think, as a specific example, I think that often we struggle with this with talking to younger people. 
there comes to be a lot of times a zeal for missions and doing things with young, with young people, and we say, make sure you focus on your job first. Don't lose your income here. Sure, you could be a missionary, but make, make sure you get some good experience under your belt first, so if it doesn't work out, you can come back and at least have a good job. I'm not saying that there's not a time to caution for wisdom in life, in living life. But I do want to say, are we asking our children and our grandchildren to say, I'll follow you, Jesus, once I get my life in order? As long as I know that I have a place to lay my head. Jesus says, that's not the type of disciples I'm looking for. Can we encourage our youth, and really all of us, to live lives that aren't fully driven toward comforts and securities, but instead are fully driven to furthering the kingdom of God? I think another way that we can ask ourselves if we're applying this is to just say, what about my own life? my own calendar, my own checkbook? Is there any evidence when you look at the way I live my life that I'm willing to sacrifice for a God who's worth it? Do I spend my money in such a way that suggests I believe that there is an everlasting, eternal life in front of me? Or do I spend my money as if I feel like the greatest, most important thing I can have right now is the comforts in this world? I think we have to take serious stock of the way we spend our time and money if we believe that Jesus is calling us to sacrificially follow him. The third way I want to ask us to apply this is to go back to the disciples who were the little face. The people who knew that Jesus was special. He was unique. He had authority. But they still struggled with it. Remember that Jesus honored that little faith. He called them to grow, but he honored them in their little faith. I think that there are probably most of us in this room who would consider ourselves people of little faith. What I would like for us to do is to confess that. To say, God, I have lived this life for me, for my happiness, for my securities, and not for you. Say, I am the O.E. of little faith one. I think we need to confess that, to repent, and to say, I believe, will you help my unbelief? I'm going to pray to close us out and ask that God will, music team can come on up, and ask that God will help us apply this to our lives. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you train our hearts to become people who willingly give everything to follow you. We pray this in your name. Amen.